this run for Utah State House is an extension of that goal to try to help vulnerable communities. As a public defender, I've had to represent people in difficult situations when the cards are deeply stacked against me. In Utah, we have a supermajority, uh, uh, the Republican supermajority in both houses of the legislature. I think that a background as being a public defender, I'm perfectly poised to deal with that extreme power dynamic. I know how to deal with uh, when, when the cards are stacked, when everyone's trying to disenfranchise you. It's difficult, but the minority party here in Utah needs to dramatically change our approach. And we've been doing the same thing now for decades, and it's not effective. So we need change in the legislature. We need a new generation to take over, and you need people, legislators, with backgrounds on how to deal with power disparities. And that's what I'm trying to bring. This is a special edition of the Orientalist Express podcast. Normally, this is the show that would bring you riveting discussions of American foreign policy, international relations, and the importance of U.S. engagement in the world. But today, we're taking a deep dive into local politics. In particular, we're going to address some of the very particular issues currently impacting my former college town, Salt Lake City, Utah. Today, I have the honor of being joined once again by one of my favorite podcast podcast guests, the illustrious Grant Miller Esquire. And yes, Thank I wanted you, to use Esquire for your for your name, Grant. So I, I appreciate that. I don't normally use the Esquire tag, but uh, today we'll make an exception. Fair enough. So Grant is a public defender in Salt Lake City and has recently announced his candidacy for Utah State House of Representatives for House District 24. So Grant, welcome back and congratulations on your campaign. Thank you so much, Nick. I appreciate it. Of course. So Grant, you are probably most famous on this show for your excellent legal analysis that you provided in the episode, What's Law Got to Do With It? And that aired uh, shortly after the unrest in my hometown of Minneapolis following the murder of George Floyd. So I encourage everyone to go back and listen to that episode as well, since I'm sure there's some common themes you're going to discover between that conversation and this one. But today we're going to take a look at your campaign platform and talk through some of the issues you've seen and your proposed solutions. So first, uh, why don't you just introduce yourself to everyone out there and talk a little bit about your journey to becoming a candidate for Utah House. Thanks, Nick. Uh, I'm a public defender, as you mentioned. I'm a native Utahn. I grew up here. After going to Snow College uh, and uh, a stint at the University of Utah. I applied to the University of Utah again for law school, uh, hoping that I could use the law in some way to try to help people, particularly vulnerable communities. When I applied, they rejected me. <laughs> it's okay. I still have that rejection letter framed next to my law degree, also from the University of Utah, um, and just kind of persevered through that. When I was in law school, I was able to meet a lot of attorneys and discovered what I wanted to practice and what I didn't. And like I said, I wanted to try to use the law to help people, particularly in vulnerable situations. I wasn't immediately seeing that in law school. I saw, you know, you could you could practice some contracts, you could you could uh, practice property law, you could practice tort law. Um, but it wasn't until I met a whole bunch of public defenders that uh, told me, like, no, we're in the courtrooms every day, and if we're not in the courtroom, we're in the jail or we're in the prison. Uh, and uh, there's not a problem that comes through this town, not a problem you see on the news that doesn't come through our office. And so if you want to do impact work in mass, uh, you should consider coming to the public defender office. And that was pretty much it. That changed my trajectory. And after law school, I became a public defender. 
this run for Utah State House is an extension of that goal to try to help vulnerable communities. As a public defender, I've had to represent people in difficult situations when the cards are deeply stacked against me. Uh, prosecutors have a lot of power. Judges have a lot of power. And usually the laws are stacked against the nature of my client. And I still have to navigate the, that course and get a favorable outcome for my clients. And I've been able to do that my entire career. In Utah, we have a supermajority, the Republican supermajority in both houses of the legislature. The Democrats only have a few precious seats. I think that a background as being a public defender, I'm perfectly poised to deal with that extreme power dynamic. I know how to mm -hmm. deal with uh, when the cards are stacked, when everyone's trying to disenfranchise you. Um, I know what kind of tools you need to employ uh, to uh, reach across the aisle and, and create negotiations where you otherwise wouldn't anticipate uh, there be room to negotiate. And when that doesn't happen, to fight in certain ways to sort of force the hand of other uh, people across the aisle to come and talk to you and find common goals. It's difficult. It's a very unique way to sort of practice law. It's a really unique way to engage in politics. But the minority party here in Utah needs to dramatically change our approach. And we've been doing the same thing now for decades, and it's not effective. So we need change in the legislature. We need a new generation to take over, and you need people, legislators, with backgrounds on how to deal with power disparities. And that's what I'm trying to bring. That's really great. I, I never thought of it like um, the difference between that power disparity. Um, yeah, I, I think that's a really excellent way of looking at it. And we'll get into that in a little bit uh, in some of these specific um issues on your your campaign platform. Um, so your first campaign point is, is, as you say, unsheltered justice. So how has your time as a public defender informed your view on homelessness? And what would you say we're currently doing wrong when addressing the concerns of the unsheltered? The homelessness issue in Salt Lake is probably issue number one right now. We have the municipal elections coming up and my election cycle is coming up next year. The top issue with every single constituent that I talk to is the homelessness issue. Uh, it has exploded. It's exploded in pretty much every major American city uh, since the pandemic. And that's a result of a lot of different cascading reasons, from affordable housing to just access to treatment centers. But notwithstanding, right now in Salt Lake, particularly downtown, if you try to go to a park uh, or access a, a library or any sort of public space, you're going to engage with people uh, experiencing unsheltered conditions. And uh, it can be very invasive. And I am very empathetic to the constituents that want a safe place to enjoy a park without having to engage with folks experiencing these difficulties. Kind of put it in perspective, you're dealing with a lot of tents, um, a lot of very temporary sort of housing situations. Mm -hmm. There's often a lot of drug use and not a great place to have the kids around. Uh, so we need a, a affirmative and immediate sort of intervention. But I am unyielding with the desire to be compassionate in our approach. So let me kind of tell you this, you asked like, how, well, as a public defender, um, how have I been able to sort of help people in, in unsheltered circumstance and what we've been doing? M many, if not most of my clients um, live in poverty to the point that they're living uh, in unsheltered conditions, whether that's couch surfing, like sleeping in their cars or to another degree, just actually living in, in tents on the street. Uh, we have great programs in Salt Lake that need expansion. One of them is called Kayak Court. And it's a, it's a program that I participated in. I love participating in it. Along the length 
of the Salt Lake Valley runs the Jordan River. And a lot of unsheltered individuals build encampments on the banks of the Jordan River because they're out of the way. They're difficult to access. Uh, so they're generally, not always, but often more safe from law enforcement abatements, you know, where they, where they might get arrested or the camp gets cleaned up by government. Um, and it's more on the sticks and more out of the way. And so there's a lot of encampments there. And what we do is we'll go out, we'll have an initial uh, outreach team uh, that is literally in kayaks and they'll go up and they'll make first contact with folks in the embankment and they'll just, you know, it's a volunteer sort of, uh, we got resources. Do you want to engage? And if they say no, you know, you just walk away from the banks of the Jordan river. We're the ones who stuck. And so it's not very invasive that way. And they generally know who we are. Uh, we have good rapport as being the different side of government that's not trying to hurt them or harm them or arrest them in any way. Uh, so usually they, they say to the outreach team that they, they want to engage in resources. The problem is that a lot of these resources uh, won't accept you, won't get accepted into housing programs or treatment programs until your warrants are cleared. A lot of these people have warrants, mm. not because they are hardened criminals, but because it is illegal to camp, uh, to trespass. Uh, the status of being unsheltered leads to citations. The status of being unsheltered means that you probably can't keep track of those citations and court dates and not making your court dates means warrants. Almost all of these warrants are failure to appear warrants. So in order to get these folks into treatment, they wave me over. And so I go in my kayak, I pull out my iPad and uh, we literally jump into court virtually. Uh, from the banks of the Jordan River, and I, I call the case. We have court. Um, there's a prosecutor. I ask to recall the warrants, get them a new court date, tell them where it is. Um, the judge recalls the warrants, and then these these folks get a reset. And in minor cases, we actually have a municipal judge that's in the kayak behind me. He's in a canoe or she's in a canoe, uh, depending on, on which judge we have. And uh, and their clerks are, are also in the canoe with them, and they'll they'll take live notes. We will have court on the water, either virtually or in person. So those are the kind of innovative uh, uh, approaches to unsheltered justice that we need to expand. Those creative ideas uh, are what's going to start to propel us forward. They're they're fun ideas, but it also takes a lot of work. And if it sounds like well, that's a lot of that's a lot of squeeze for the juice. It doesn't matter how you approach unsheltered justice. You have to squeeze a lot to, <laughs> uh, for the juice you get. It takes a lot of work. And we have to accept that this is sort of a resource-intensive issue that's going to require a lot of work to resolve. But it, it, it's worth it for us to do that. And we need to be able to commit those resources sooner than later if we want immediate change with a compassionate approach. That's that's a really amazing program. That sounds very cool. And it's I love that it's meeting people where they are, you know, mm -hmm. in both a physical and kind of a psychological sense of we're not just putting up all these demands of saying, you show up here and now, and if you don't, well then, you know, tough's on you. Have some responsibility. You should have thought ahead. Like we're we're not giving everyone a complete pass, but we are helping, taking those steps to meet people where they are. And I think that's a great program. That that's really cool. Um, we're not talking about violent felonies where we need to have people incarcerated for the sake of the public safety. We're only incarcerating people in these failure appeared warrants uh, simply out of convenience uh, for clearing the cases for the judicial system. And that doesn't make sense. Uh, so meeting people where they are and bringing the judges out in the world. I love it. Um, whenever I, I have a frustrating time with the prosecutor, I always kind of recommend like, hey, you know, let's you want to go to the place? 
Um, have you ever been down to the jail? Uh, I think that everyone, everyone that's involved in the criminal justice system should have to at least like spend a day hanging out in the jail. I'm there every week. I think that everyone else should kind of understand and appreciate what we do to people when we send them to jail, when we send them to prison, um, mm -hmm. what that looks like. Um, but all these things, as you'll see, are kind of very intertwined. Um, I mean, once again, why I think at this point, a criminal defense lawyer, particularly a public defender, is the right person to represent Salt Lake in the state legislature right now. So what would some of your solutions look like? I think you mentioned unsheltered like safe zones, a homeless bill of rights. What would that look like in practice then? Yes. Uh, right now, one of the prevailing um, ideas that there is a pilot program for is to create a, a sanctioned zone uh, for folks experiencing homelessness that want to have their own encampment. Uh, a lot of times, these folks don't want to go to a shelter for obvious reasons. Um, they're kind of the shelters are are dorm style. They're kind of open. Um, you're exposed to a lot of people. There's a lot of thefts that happen. A lot of assaults. Uh, people don't feel safe there. And so a lot of times it makes more sense to just kind of uh, head out on your own and just find a safe spot that you could hang out. Having a sanctioned area in this case makes sense to have people allowed for their own space, but keep like a designated area so that way it's just not anywhere. Um, but we have to do it thoughtfully. Um, other municipalities have tried this. There are right ways to do this and there are wrong ways to do this. To simply say, this is the place, go to this place. Um, has been tried before and it's dangerous. What you want to do is create oversight and connection to programming. The idea is that we don't want people to be impoverished and living in their tent forever. We want to transition them uh, into resources and to housing because we can't. We have the ability to, and in my experience with my clients experiencing unsheltered uh, conditions, they want to transition into housing. The other low piece of low-hanging fruit is that we need more mental health resources. And by need more, I mean anything at all. Um, yeah. Salt Lake is is gotten a lot better with substance abuse. Uh, we have a lot of residential substance abuse uh, centers. A lot of the folks that I have in jail, I transition out of jail and into a substance abuse center. And from there, they usually can transition through housing. And we get funding federally through Medicaid to accomplish all of this. And it's working. The problem is the flip side. Um, the folks that have uh, severe mental wellness issues, Folks like uh, a schizoaffective disorder or, or bipolar or manic depressive disorders that uh, you can actually help resolve with, uh, with the right medicated treatments uh, and, and help these people live healthy, productive lives once you kind of get them stabilized. But we just don't have beds. We don't have beds, period. Like either there are a handful, there's like two organizations that have like about a dozen beds a piece that does not meet need, doesn't even come close the low-hanging fruit here is that we need statewide resources and start uh, putting out requests for proposals to bring out out-of-state organizations that know how to deal with mental wellness issues in mass, and we need to just get it started. That is the low-hanging fruit that we can immediately start to address, because when I got clients in jail with substance abuse, I know exactly what to do. Um, if they have a mental health issue that is at the bottom of their offending behavior, uh, that's bringing him into jail. There, there are very few buttons I could push. Now, there's no lever there that that exists, and we need one um, because otherwise, the alternative is simply incarcerating people because they have a mental wellness issue, and that is fundamentally unacceptable. Uh, so, those are those are the functional uh, uh, solutions I want to pursue as a legislator. Uh, help the cities pursue, um, assuming that we're all on the same page on these. I imagine we are. I've been talking with uh, with some of the homeless outreach uh, folks at the city. We work together 
and these are some of the the prevailing ideas. And if those change, you know, I, I I want to make sure that whatever the goals are of the city and the county, that they get the state resources they need through the legislature. And that's that's what I'm being mindful about. Yeah, I think that's an excellent comprehensive approach. And like you say, it's so much more than just homelessness. It's it's substance abuse. It's mental health. It's so many things are feeding into that. And clearly cruelty and just saying personal responsibility is not solving this this issue. We have to show some compassion. We have to give people the resources because quite frankly, there's no real good mental health resources for anyone in this country, let alone you know, people who are who are down on their luck or who are incarcerated, they they get even even less access than anyone else around here. So, correct, correct. So it's a tricky problem, uh, and anyone says that it's easy uh, isn't acquainted with the uh, unique challenges of it. And this isn't going to be something that's going to immediately be alleviated overnight. But the good news is there are good examples we can follow, and so long that we follow the uh, successful playbooks. Uh, we're going to start seeing the changes that we need uh, in in Salt Lake um, that are going to be effective uh, and they're going to be visible and uh, they're going to be rapid if we do it right. Yeah. So your next point in your campaign platform is on reproductive justice. And I I sense this one might be a little bit more difficult to crack um, because this issue not only touches on, of course, abortion, access to contraception, it also impacts the rights of transgender individuals, those who are seeking gender-affirming care. Um, and I was looking it up, Utah recently passed legislation by some pretty wide margins to functionally essentially ban abortion and ban gender-affirming care for youth. Um, so we touched on it just a little bit, but what will be your approach to safeguarding these rights in what's probably for you kind of a hostile political environment for those issues? I appreciate that, Nick. And before we dive into this area, I just want to recognize um, that we're 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 both uh, uh, you know white passing males um, that uh, yeah. identify with the gender of our birth, um, and so I, I want to recognize that mm-hmm. uh, that uh, we're not necessarily the diversity that we speak of here when we're talking about these issues. And I want to be mindful and recognize it. Notwithstanding, I think it's important for us to elevate the voices around us, and I think that it's yes. important, particularly for a couple of dudes, to be talking about these issues. Uh, I've yeah. noticed that like when I'm hanging out with other people that are, you know, just just guys that identify with the gender they're born with, uh, very uncomfortable, even if they are progressive or identify with being progressive, are uncomfortable talking about these issues. And I, I don't think that uh, uh, men ought to be uncomfortable. I think that uh, informing each other and talking more in depth about these uh, 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 very particular issues like trans rights, like women's rights. Um, and abortion access, uh, I think that we need to kind of step in this, the shoes of others and elevate the voices of others. So just wanted yeah. to recognize that real quick before, you know, anyone just like looks at like, look at these guys mansplaining. We, we, we understand that we have a lot of privilege in this discussion and that so many of the things we're about to talk about don't directly impact us in as meaningful a way as others. Exactly. But with that said, um, diving into uh these multifaceted issues. I kind of want to start with trans rights. Um, In Utah, fortunately, we do have legislation that's relatively new that allows you uh, to confirm your gender on your driver's license and birth certificate. And there are ways that you can do that through court forms. And you could do it in theory yourself without the help of an attorney. The problem is twofold. Uh, First of all, the uh, requirements, I think, are burdensome. There's quite a list of uh, of things you kind of have to check off before you can be granted a court order 
to uh, uh, change your gender on a on a, uh, a birth certificate or a driver's license. And I think that's unduly burdensome. I, I think that, um, you know, there's probably some concessions made uh, by the progressives in the Utah legislature just to get this done to begin with. These kinds of uh, 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 hoops are created in theory to protect things like uh, like fraud, protect against fraud. But I don't think that people are out there actually trying to engage this process for the purpose of defrauding. I have not seen any evidence to support that. I think that they're just needless barriers uh, mm -hmm. to prevent people from uh, really being who they are. And that's unjust, I think. I think that we need to make a streamlined uh, uh, approach um, that doesn't require so many judicial hoops uh, to uh, confirm your gender on a, on a driver's license or on a birth certificate. I think that judges, you know, need to follow the law. Uh, I, I believe this, even in times when I don't want judges to follow the law, I, I get it. You know, sometimes the law is unjust, but when a law is unjust, you have to change it. And that's what I'm trying to do. That's why I'm running for the state legislature. And uh, Nikki also brought up something about uh, gender affirming care for minors. What I think is beyond unfortunate is each legislative session, the uh, majority party in this state tries to make political issue, not only of trans rights, but they target trans youth. And it's, it's kind of infuriating, whether or not it, it's, it's sports or gender affirming health care, they, they target trans youth. And if you think about any other course in history, if the government targets the youth of a vulnerable minority group, it's it's been an era of history where the government has been deliberately oppressive, and this is no different. They're using this as a political football. Um, it's abusive. I feel badly for my friends in the trans community because they often don't feel comfortable in Utah, and I don't blame them. Utah is is trying to be a hostile environment uh, for individuals just trying to confirm their own gender and their own comfort in their lives. They have a right to that. You have a right to change your name if you don't like your name. You have a right to change your job. You don't like your job. You have a right to, to, to you know, get a divorce if you're unhappy with your marriage. Um, the fact that we have to stop the buck at, at gender confirmation just shows an unwillingness to change. And I think that the state of Utah is showing some signs of progress, but we need to kind of bring that to the forefront. Um, and that's what I'm hoping to do, make uh, uh, gender confirming uh, legal statutes more accessible uh, and, uh, you know, guide the courts, to put it politely, to help them uh, with people who are seeking gender confirmation. Yeah, I agree. What's so infuriating is it's wrapped up in, you know, protecting children, but but really it's causing so much harm to transgender children um, around the state and around the country. You know, it's and it's causing a lot of uh, a lot of children to have such difficulty that they feel the need to flee the state just to basically be who they are. The crux of the matter, it's a political football when it's actually a health care issue. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that the legislature should get involved when there's a decision being made by an individual and their parents and a physician that believes that uh, the, you know, whatever health care is necessary and proper for whatever medical reason. I'm not a doctor and I want to let doctors do what doctors do and what they think are in the best interest of an individual. I don't think that a bunch of lawyers, uh, uh, legislators, lawyer legislators in the, uh, in the legislature 
uh, are well equipped to do that. I think doctors are, uh, doctors that study this kind of medicine. Um, and so I think that once again, the majority party is using this as a political football. It is deeply unfortunate. Um, and I hope that we can deal with more substantive issues and move on from the, the, the bullying and oppression of, of vulnerable communities. So uh, understanding that some of these laws in and of their entirety are unlikely to change given the makeup of the Utah State House and legislature, um, you know, what are some of those avenues you'll work within? Is it more um, clarifying the laws, working towards uh, better enforcement that is more just and equitable? Um, I'm just wondering what what are the ways in which we'll be able to to tackle that if we can't wholesale change the actual law on the legislative level? Well, there, there's low-hanging fruit here as well. Like, I, real quick, I want to pivot to uh, right to choose an abortion because there are some really great examples uh, strategically of how to deal with that in the legislature. So abortion access. Right now, um, uh, abortion access is still legal uh, in the state of Utah. Uh, it is pending in the courts. It was just heard by the Utah Supreme Court a few weeks ago as the recording of this podcast. And the Supreme Court is currently taking it under advisement about whether or not the, the um, Planned Parenthood's challenge to the new Utah statute uh, should be uh, dismissed or whether or not it should continue in the lower trial court. The abortion ban itself makes abortion, anyone who performs an abortion, a second degree felon. That in English means a crime that is punishable by no less than one year in prison and no more than 15 years in prison. So to put this in perspective, you know, other second degree felony cases I work on are cases that, uh, you know, for example, involve aggravated assault where strangulation or a weapon was used. Um, they include forms of homicide that fall just short of uh, premeditated murder. They include a litany of sex crimes or a collection of sex crimes, for example, that come to mind that are classified as a uh, second degree felonies. What they've done is they kind of went to the top of the list and said, we're going to not only criminalize abortion, you're not only going to lose your license if you're uh, if you're uh, practicing gynecological medicine and performing abortion, but we're going to try to imprison you for up to 15 years. So when you read there, there are several different abortion bans uh, in Utah that pass are kind of pending. But the one that I'm referring to that has uh, a, a criminal liability, it has defenses built into it. Uh, for example, there's a defense um, that, you know, there's no criminal liability for a, uh, a, an abortion performed for someone who is at serious physical risk of substantial impairment of a major bodily function or death. And you need two doctors to confirm that in writing. Now, this this is one of those things that, once again, Nick kind of infuriates me because these legislators aren't practicing gynecological medicine. And... Yeah. What you're going to have and what you already have in other states where uh, abortion bans are currently in play with criminal liability is you have women or individuals that can bear children um, who need abortion health care. And you have doctors calling their lawyers uh, trying to figure out the definition of phrases like serious physical risk. What is substantial impairment? What is a major bodily function? And you need to know and you need to be confident in it because otherwise you can go to prison. And that's yeah. baffling. You could leave a woman bleeding out on a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a hospital table while there's a legal debate going on about whether or not you could be prosecuted. One step further, I'm a criminal defense lawyer. 
I know that you don't necessarily need to keep the defenses in mind as a prosecutor to bring charges. For example, if just because there's someone that might have a self-defense claim, it's not going to keep you from filing assault charges. You know, if mm. that person wants to invoke self-defense, they could do that before a jury. This is where it gets really scary. All prosecutors in the state are elected officials. So imagine now in conservative places where there's a conservative agenda, you have a conservative politician running on, I'm going to enforce pro-life stuff. I'm going to vigorously prosecute any physician that performs an abortion. And that means they're going to go out of their way to just find anybody and make an example out of them and then just charge them regardless of whether or not they could meet the very vague parameters of these defenses. Uh, That means that in that rural county, with that prosecutor, you're going to get a jury of your peers, but they're going to be likely a conservative jury. Are they going to allow you to apply uh, those defenses? I think that this essentially creates a trap where you have uh, committed those doctors that practice gynecological medicine to ultimately become felons. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So I think that the low-hanging fruit here, at the very least, is to start addressing that. I think that these extreme criminal measures were passed in haste. All these conservative legislators were just like, "Oh, we're gonna we're gonna ban abortion, and we're gonna we're gonna hang people for doing it." Um, I think that at at the very least, you could get some reasonable, moderate legislators to start here and we could start chipping away and and start bringing back uh, uh, abortion access in more and more reasonable forms. It's going to take time, but Mm -hmm. this is kind of where it starts. Um, Let's let's legalize gynecological medicine first. And it starts with the low hanging fruit of chipping away the obviously egregious aspects of the abortion ban, uh, and we're going to start working on trying to bring that back. Even with the supermajority, I think that there's room to start working on this kind of stuff. Yeah, I, that sounds like a smart approach to me, where we're trying to get these wins where we can, and in these these incremental, as you say, these um, these really legalistic types of of phrases in these particular laws. Where I think you're right, they they decide to just throw everything at the wall, see what would stick. And see how much how they could make things vague enough to just have a chilling effect, so that as you say, doctors would just go, "I don't know that I'm covered here, but I know if I do this, I'm going to get in trouble. Even if I have to go through, even if in the end I will get through all of this just fine." You know, it's do you really want to take the chance with the prosecutor, with a jury of your peers, with this defense that you don't know if that's actually going to work because you're not a lawyer, you're a doctor. Um, you know, start chipping away at that and saying. Can we put some stronger protections in these laws, make some tweaks and changes to, as you say, bring back the very basics of just gynecological health care and making that legal again? I think that when something is so brazenly awful, um, it could only exist in that way uh, so long before people just realize that it's fundamentally unjust. I hope it doesn't have to go so far as to people experiencing serious health defects or death. Yeah. And as you say, the um, the the vagueness of it is kind of the point. Yep, exactly. So well, I guess let's pivot on to your final campaign point then, criminal justice. Uh, of course, as a trial attorney, you, you've seen just how easy it can be for people to get swallowed up into the criminal justice system and how difficult it is for for innocent people to get out. So, so what are some of the ways in which the system is flawed and how do you think we can adjust our approach to criminal justice 
while, of course, still keeping our streets safe. So I want to talk about three things. I want to talk about healthcare. Common theme through all this stuff is access to substance abuse, mental health care. You have to kind of treat the root of crime if you actually want crime to go away. When recidivism goes down, public safety goes up. Uh, so that's kind of where we need to start. Uh, second, we need to stop ratcheting up these criminal laws. Uh, we all kind of know what's illegal. You know, you look at the, you know, generally the non-religious aspects of the uh, Ten Commandments. You know, that, that's kind of what we think should be in the world of criminal law. But if you take the Utah Code Book, I mean, it is a, it is a proper doorstop. You could theoretically, the average person commits three felonies a day. There are so many things that are illegal that we just don't know. I think that we need to get back to a world where criminal justice needs to be rehabilitative. Well, not even get back to a world, create a world where uh, criminal justice is actually rehabilitative. And we need to approach every case with the knowledge that this person is going to be released back into society one day. Um, it doesn't matter if you send them to prison first. It doesn't matter if they go to jail first. Um, you're going to be released, except in a very few uh, a collection of cases where someone is getting life without parole uh, or has been subjected to the death penalty. Will this person not be paroled someday? Mm -hmm. And when you send someone to prison, uh, you're just sending them to uh, just just bad guy boot camp. Uh, I hate to put it like in, in those yeah. terms, but you you when you take they learn how to be a better criminal. You, you, well, you, you put someone, particularly at a young age, the school to prison pipeline is real. It's where I uh, put a lot of my efforts is to try to protect a lot of the kids that are under the age of 21 that wind up um, it, under my representation. Do my best to keep them out of, out of, out of prison. Um, because one thing I know for sure is that, you know, they might have a chance if you give them structure now. But you send them to prison, you're putting them into a trauma sphere. Um, where their life is almost always going to be in jeopardy. Um, and they're never going to be the same after that, period. I, I, I don't think that you take a 19-year-old, put them in prison for five years, and all of a sudden uh, the correctional system has uh, reformed them. Uh, I think that's a fundamentally ridiculous and misguided uh, prospect. And so we need to simplify our legal codes. Each year, the legislature comes up with uh, something new we have to criminalize. You know, like, uh, let's take some action. Let's criminalize X, Y, or Z so we can we can take some action against whatever thing is, is plaguing our community. And quite frankly, almost always, there's a law that already has existed on the books, and we don't need that new law. And so the next thing they do is they say, oh, well, let's ratchet up the sentencing. It's like, no, 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 stop. Stop it. We already have draconian sentences. Two million people are incarcerated in this country. We yes. have more people incarcerated than China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea. And that puts it into perspective. Is this really about criminal justice? When our geopolitical foes, the people that we think are the bad guys, need to combine their numbers to uh, even match how many people we have incarcerated? I mean, it's not even a per capita number. It just doesn't make any sense. And so, no, we don't need more draconian rules. No, we don't need more criminal laws. And I will fight vehemently draconian sentences. We don't need mandatory minimums. Three strike laws. I can't tell you how many people I've represented uh, being charged for felonies for stealing food. Hmm. It's not okay. The third prong, I'm going to fight against the death penalty. Uh, it needs to go. Quick, quick story, Nick, the last person to be executed 
uh, in the state of Utah. His name was Ronnie Lee Gardner. He uh, shot a defense lawyer uh, when he was in the courthouse on trial for another murder. Uh, and so when his sentencing came, judge just said, okay, well, death penalty time. Uh, you know, like this is, this is hmm. a severe aggravating circumstance um, and he was to be executed by firing squad. Um, oh. So yeah, Utah does firing squad. Uh, nice. So it was, a, I believe it was in 2010. It was about 10 years ago that uh, it, the death penalty, very strange. It was like a ritual. Uh, the judge issues a death warrant. Everyone waits until midnight. Uh, Mr. Gardner was uh, taken to a chair and he's strapped to that chair. There's a hood that's put over his head. A physician uh, takes a, uh, a stethoscope, finds his heartbeat and puts a marker over his heart. A short distance away, there are four openings in the wall. Uh, for four uh, uh, riflemen, uh, they are law enforcement officers that volunteer. They are uh, stagnant posts, so you really can't miss from short distance. Four, four, four law enforcement officers, one of them has blanks. The warden uh, asked Mr. Gardner if he had anything to say. He tried to shake his head no, but it was, you know, like held yeah. and strained to the chair. And a long silence. This is all an article I read from, the, uh, from a, a witness from the Tribune. And uh, they shot him. Two of the bullets hit him straight in the heart. One was a few inches underneath his heart, which sort of begs a very eerie question of the likelihood of this uh, third individual wanting to purposefully miss his heart to see if he had the blanks or not, uh, is sort of mm -hmm. my takeaway from yeah. uh, that, that, that series and, and bullet pattern. And after uh, Riley Gardner was shot, he, he clenched his chair. You can see his, 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 his knuckles... Um, and, and, and fingers kind of clench up and he never unclenched. And so for a while, no one really kind of knew whether or not he was dead or just, uh, you know, kind of an excruciating <laughs> period of suffering. Uh, and finally, the physician walked up and, and checked the heartbeat and confirmed that he was indeed dead. That was the last episode of um, a firing squad death penalty in the state. Uh, to put that into perspective, it took about 20 years of post-sentence litigation. So he had been sentenced to die, took another two decades of post-conviction relief, habeas corpus writs, and appeals mm -hmm. to sort of get to that point. Cost the state millions and millions yeah. of dollars. From my perspective, I work at a public defender office. Our best lawyers, like the creme de la creme that should be working on you know, pretty much all these other cases are specifically tied up in aggravated murder cases. And I know the same is true over at the DA's office, that their best prosecutors aren't working on, on the caseload in mass and supervising other attorneys. They are, they are working on aggravated murder cases. So we're tying up our best resources to quibble over death penalty, something that only really tends to happen once every 10 years. To put this yeah. in further perspective of how ridiculous it is that we still keep the death penalty on the books, uh, since the death penalty was reinstated in the 1970s by the Supreme Court, um, I want to say that something to the tune of like just over 100 people were sentenced to die in the state of Utah, but only about five or six, uh, I need to check my numbers, but around five, six, possibly seven people have actually been executed since the reinstatement of the death penalty. Notwithstanding, you're talking about like a 3% return. These are people sentenced to die in only three 3% of those actually were, you know, the executions were carried out. If you think of the death penalty as a service, which you kind of have to, what other government service would you remotely tolerate being successful 3% of the time? 
hmm. at the expense of tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, what what kind of government service would you tolerate the garbage truck coming at three percent of the time, the school yeah. bus coming three percent of the time, a teacher showing up to work three percent of the no, not at the expense of hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, and so when you put it into perspective, the conservative argument alone of justice makes no sense. There is no relationship between the uh, deterrent aspect of, uh, of the death penalty uh, in practice. Uh, all of that is speculative. And anyone says that there is a deterrent aspect is, is heavily speculating. doesn't matter how academic it sounds. Um, there is no real evidence to support it. Um, because the truth is this. Those that get caught up in homicide situations, particularly aggravated homicide situations, usually have a root of the issue. There's a reason why they got involved in it. Maybe it's gang violence. A lot of times it's mental illness. There's a lot of sort of psychotic episodes that I see that lead to the most gruesome homicides. When you're dealing with um, cultural situations like gang violence, or you're dealing with mental health situations like psychosis, um, the deterrent aspect obviously does not come into play whatsoever. And yeah. so it's needless. It's, it's the government in red states says like, oh, well, it's about justice. You know, let's 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 send someone back to their maker to be judged. And once again, that just that just brings us full circle. This is just ritualistic murder by the government. This whole idea of like send you back to your maker. We're going to yeah. get a death warrant. We're going to shoot you from a chair. The government has no purpose in ritualistic the murder of civilians. And I stand by that. And Utah legislature is close, I believe, to abolishing the death penalty once and for all. If for no other reason, then it's just a, a cost burden. And we need to, if for no other reason, free up the best criminal lawyers and prosecutors in this state to focus on the real work and uh, and free up resources uh, for for other serious crimes. Um, very passionate about it. I know that it's not a hot button issue, um, but uh, at the same time, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that it's not a personal goal, if not one of the forefront goals of my run for office to uh, to walk away from from my career if i could walk away from my career and know that the death penalty has been abolished from the state i would consider the whole thing to be success uh so that's that's something i care passionately about um and is the third prong of my uh, of my criminal uh, reform uh, policy proposals and i hope we can make it happen i think we can but um that's that's kind of it i think with health care more treatment preventing more draconian laws from being passed taking care of our sentencing, making sure that we're not just throwing people away in cages, but trying to take care of them, and finally getting rid of the death penalty are three broad goals that I'm hoping to accomplish in criminal justice reform. Yeah, and I think the through line in all of that is that it shouldn't be punitive necessarily, it should be restorative. Because clearly, if we're just saying, you know, lock them up, kill them, throw away the key, that's obviously not working. That hasn't that hasn't solved issues of criminal justice for the hundreds of years that we've had this system. So maybe we ought to try a slightly different approach. And I really like how you brought up uh, you know, even the, the the moral issues, the practical issues aside from the death penalty. Uh, one thing that people just don't seem to realize is that it is expensive and it takes so much time and is such a burden for, as you said, one person every, every 10 years. But um, you know, if we just decided that we don't want to uh, we don't want to kind of force justice into being punitive and we actually like just take a different approach that will free up a lot of resources, free up a lot of people, a lot of money, a lot of time. And and ultimately, it'll just be be better and more equitable anyway, because as you said, who are the people who are actually getting these death sentences? More often than not, it's 
people with mental health issues, people who are involved in gang violence and, and that's not an equity, you know, that's, that's not being equitable right there either. It, it's true. And real quick coming to mind, um, Utah needs to legalize recreational marijuana just does like in Nevada last year, uh, Nevada collected about like $140 million in tax revenue, um, from marijuana sales for recreational purposes. With that into contrast, Utah spent at least 14 million in law enforcement, uh, of, uh, recreational marijuana. Um, and so where our neighbor states are raking in new lines of tax revenue that generally funnel into uh, education, which we desperately need here in Utah, we spend less per capita than we ever have in the past. Uh, we're actually taking money, I'd argue, out of uh, out of education, out of uh, favor of uh, uh, children, and using it to prosecute usually youngsters. Uh, teenagers uh, for recreational marijuana at the expense of at least $14 million. And that, once again, if we're going to use conservative arguments in a supermajority, you got to use that same same logic. Uh, conservatives need to be fiscally conservative. What kind of fiscal conservatism bans recreational marijuana out of a, a vague and nebulous policy reason and then turns around and uh, tries to <laughs> incarcerate people at great expense. Um, that's needless. Uh, I also think that uh, psilocybin uh, should be legalized mm. for medicinal purposes. Um, I think that uh, psilocybin is shown to have great impacts, particularly on mental health. Um, and the fact that we're not using this tool to help guide people into better life, better ways of thinking, uh, using it as a tool of medicine. When we've used terrible tools like oxycodone and, and, and other sort of opiates and, and, and amphetamine based drugs for every other purpose. Uh, yeah. We are not using these naturally occurring uh, uh, substances that have medicinal qualities that have been proven to help people uh, with uh, mental health challenges. Um, so just low hanging fruit there, um, but like kind of needs to happen. I, I think that across the country over the next 30 years, you're probably going to see more and more legalization of recreational marijuana and uh, medicinal psilocybin. I think that Utah needs to not wait um, and to get out in front of it. Yeah, Minnesota, actually, uh, as of the 1st of August, we have fully recreational marijuana legalized and uh, we're, we're doing all right here, you know, pulled in like half a million in tax revenue alone. So things things are fine here. It, you can do that and it's not going to cause the end of society as we know it. We have laws and and structures now where examples that we can follow so we can do it safely without society collapsing around us just because weed is now legal. Anarchy hasn't unfolded in Nevada or Colorado or Arizona. Um, you know, people haven't succumbed to reefer madness. Um, <laughs> they're, they're, they're not running in the streets. I, I, I think it comes from a misunderstanding of what, uh, what these substances are. I think that Utah, though, uh, the majority of Utahns, uh, are very curious about marijuana, very accepting about marijuana. And I think that they're starting to realize that uh, we could do a lot more. We could generate a lot of revenue. Uh, you look at the dispensary out in Wendover, Nevada, um, and that typically rakes in a, at least a million dollars a year in tax revenue. And I think that that money, that tax revenue, at least a, a million dollars a year, uh, should very well be Utah's, um, but we refuse to collect it. Instead, we insist on punishing it. It's an expensive game. We're losing money. We're failing to collect the, the, the money that we should just be grabbing. 
it's a waste of officers that could be actually like solving violent crimes and, yes. and things that are truly problematic. Yep. So why are we wasting our resources on that when we have other bigger problems to solve? So then uh, I guess what else should people know about your campaign? How can they get involved? And most importantly, when is your primary election date? All fantastic questions. So I'm in the 2024 uh, election cycle. Uh, the uh, election, the primary election is going to be in late June. Um, so it's a little bit of ways out, but I want people to kind of know now that we're not running in this election cycle, but uh, we're running next year. I want everyone who can just, uh, if you can't help out, the best way to do it is to follow me on all social media platforms at Grant is the guy. Um, I'm on at Grant is the guy on Instagram, on X, formerly Twitter. Thanks, Elon Musk. Um, I'm at Grant is the guy on TikTok. Uh, grantistheguy.com if you want to go and uh, uh, find out more about our platform uh, find out about the district boundaries joining our street team uh, helping us knock doors picking up a sign uh, making a financial contribution you can do all of that at grantistheguy.com excellent well I suppose that's it for this episode of the Orientalist Express podcast I'd like to once again thank you Grant for joining the show today really appreciate it yeah, my pleasure Nick thanks for having me course i highly encourage everyone to go to grantistheguy.com great great website name by the way thank you uh do that to donate volunteer or order a really cool sign with grant's like epic mustache on it uh, <laughs> i love that branding um but thanks of course as always to our listeners readers of the blog be sure to check out our website at orientalistexpress.com uh to like and share on our facebook page uh, tweet us at orientalistdxp um, and of course, one final note, uh, these blog and podcast episodes, uh, as you may have noticed, have become much more infrequent now these days as the demands of fatherhood, a full-time job with Global Minnesota are keeping me quite busy. Uh, but you can, of course, still catch all of my personal latest monthly podcast episodes with the Global Minnesota podcast. Uh, each month, I'm interviewing some of the amazing people that work in our mission to bring Minnesota to the world and the world to Minnesota. So you'll find all that at globalminnesota.org. Um, and I'm also posting them to this podcast channel each month. Uh, but most importantly, for right now, go to grantistheguy.com, volunteer, donate, sign up, get an awesome sign, um, and help to make Grant Miller the next representative in the Utah State House. Thank you so much, Nick. All right. Thanks again, everyone. And we'll see you next time.